6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah with a session titled, Monuments from Prehistory. My personal background is uh, engineering, graduate degrees in math, engineering, and business. I spent the last 30 years in technology ventures, been on 12 boards, chairman of six of them, mostly in high technology ventures. So my particular appetites and hobbies and interests are perhaps, uh, well, some people call me the apostle of the arcane. Uh, Romaine would say the weird, but in any case. Um, <laughs> but I think, in fairness to some people who may have, may this may first experience to uh, spend some time together, I should mention I do hold some very strong, rather extreme views. And the first one is, <laughs> no, yeah, seriously, first one is, is that uh, this collection of books we call the Bible. I am totally persuaded in writing books and things on that very subject. It, this, the 66 books that we call the Bible, although written by 40 authors over thousands of years, can be demonstrated to be a single message system. What I mean by that is not just that there's a common theme or some continuity of various kinds conceptually. I hold the view and prepared to prove it that it is an integrated design. First point is that those 66 books spreading over thousands of years and 40 different penmen are designed. Every number, every place name, every comma, so to speak, I'm speaking the original, is there by design. Secondly, that that design emerged from outside our time domain, and you can prove it. And I won't spend that time tonight to get into all of this, but just as a piece of background, I'm going to assert that. And so you, if you're new to me, you can challenge me on that at some other time, but just realize that that's where I'm coming from that this, the book that we deal with so glibly, we call the Bible, has been tragically mutilated and diluted and confused over the centuries. The ones that bother the, me the most are not the critics, because they are what they are, but more so the denominations and things that have watered it down so it's hard to recognize. And so step one, you need to understand where I'm coming from, is take the Bible very, very seriously. In that spirit, then, there's a couple of other things that we should put in focus. The rabbis have some quaint views of the scriptures, and they're, of course, speaking of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. But they, they, they are fond of pointing out that they don't believe the passages will really be understood until the Messiah comes. But when the Messiah comes, he will not only interpret the passages, he'll interpret the words, he'll interpret the very letters. In fact, he'll even interpret the spaces between the letters. And when I first heard that, I felt that was just a colorful exaggeration. It's kind of a quaint phrase. The more I've studied the Scripture, the more I'm convinced they're absolutely right. Now, uh, my background is information sciences. When I say that the Bible is an engineered message system, let me tell you how far that really goes. And I realize I may lose a few of you in what I'm about to say, but I'm talking to the engineers and technical people here. If you are a communications engineer trying to design a communication system and you are faced with the possibility 
of hostile jamming. You can design your communication system to anticipate that. One of the things you do is you spread your message over the available bandwidth. Any system, be it a telephone system, a video system, any system has a certain bandwidth. Paul Revere had one if by land, two if by sea. That's binary coded decimal with one bit of information and a carrier bit. Okay? <laughs> the Bible is designed to anticipate jamming. What do I mean by that? Have you ever noticed in the Bible that there's no chapter on baptism? There's no chapter on salvation? Name any doctrine. There's no chapter on that, like a textbook. In fact, in Isaiah 28, and we'll get to the word in the study of Isaiah, we'll get to that subsequent weeks, but uh, in Isaiah 28, 29, God says through Isaiah, I have established my, my truth, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And we analyze the Bible from an information system point of view. We discover it's really a hologram. It's a Fourier transform, which essentially means that you can remove any page and not lose the truth. You may lose resolution, but you don't lose it. There's no way to take, to, to, to destroy the message by editing, despite what the critics have tried to do for centuries. Now, we're going to enter into the area of hostile jamming tonight and next week in some very strange ways. Well, at this point, let's just jump in and start. We're going to get to Isaiah 19, which is our point of departure. But before we do, you might turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 32. In Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 18, 18 through uh, 20, are some remarks directed towards the Lord God of Israel. We we'll start at verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and outstretched arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands, and recompense the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of the children. After them, the great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts, is his name. Great in counsel, mighty in work, for thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men, to give every one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. So far, very comfortable, very typical of a praise passage in the Psalms of the other prophets. And, of course, Jeremiah continues. But verse 20, he makes an interesting remark, speaking of the Lord, who hast set signs and wonders in the land of what? Egypt. That's interesting. Even unto this day, and in Israel, and among other men, and has made the name at this day. And then he goes on to talk about the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Turn with me now to, but we'll go pop back to Isaiah 19. Now, those of you that are just joining us should understand we've been going through the book of Isaiah, part of the Old Testament, written about eight centuries before Christ was born which may be very academic to us. The main thing is the entire Old Testament is translated into Greek three centuries before Christ was born. So when it starts predicting things in our day, it gets rather uh, an interesting book. But the thing that caused us to take a departure from our usual perusal of the book of Isaiah, we were in chapter 19 last week. And uh, in chapter 19, chapter 19 deals with Egypt. And Isaiah, earlier in the chapter, predicts the debacle known as the Aswan Dam and its ecological results, and that gets interesting. It also predicts some things about Egypt and Assyria and Israel that are destined for the very time of the end. And we won't review all that, but we did run into two verses that have received an amazing amount of study for some reasons that will develop tonight. And that's verses 19 and 20 in Isaiah. 
Verse 19, in that day, speaking of the end times he's talking about, in that day there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar at the border of it to the Lord. Now it sounds like two things, doesn't it? An altar and a pillar. The word pillar could be monument. And the altar is not necessarily an altar of sacrifice. It can be an altar of witness. Okay? And it's in the, the, the Hebrew word for that is lion of God. So that's kind of interesting, but we'll go ahead here. It's going to be in Egypt, but there's apparently two things, except verse 20 refers to the two of them singularly. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors, and he shall send them a Savior, a great one, and he shall deliver them. An altar in the midst of Egypt and a pillar on the border thereof. Sounds like two things, but the grammatical structure in the following verse implies that that is actually two ways of saying the same thing. Very common structure in the Hebrew. We notice it through Proverbs and elsewhere, where the, the writer will say the same thing two different ways. Very common Hebraism. So it would seem that these two verses refer to something, a pillar and an altar, that at the same moment is in the middle of Egypt, and yet it's on the border thereof. Well, it's interesting that in 1868, the head of the U.S. survey, Henry Mitchell, while checking on the progress on the Suez Canal at that time, noted something interesting in the land of Egypt. It turns out that Egypt dates the, the, from the uniting of what's called Upper and Lower Egypt. Upper Egypt being the south, bear in mind the Nile is flowing northward. Upper Egypt being up here, Lower Egypt down there. The pharaohs of Egypt, if you've ever seen an authentic representation in movies or elsewhere, wore a uh, uh, headgear that was half red, half white. Speaking of Upper and Lower Egypt, the title of the pharaohs was the Pharaoh of Upper and Lower Egypt. So. The border between Upper and Lower Egypt is right across here. In fact, there is a town called Giza, which means border. At the same time, that particular point is, a, is, a, is the center of a quadrant of the Nile Delta. And Henry Mitchell, knowing nothing about the Bible and nothing about prophecy, happened to note that the interesting thing about the Great Pyramid in Egypt is that it sits at the same time, in the midst of Egypt, and yet on the border thereof. And that is something that causes us to say, gee, is it possible that the Great Pyramid at Giza is somehow related to Isaiah chapter 19, verses 19 and 20? Because we obviously have a lot of insights that our friend Henry Mitchell did not have, and that starts to make this whole thing get a little more complicated. Let me uh, mention a few things before we go on about the pyramids in Egypt. There's about 80 of them. The um, Great Pyramid that we're going to focus on is a subject of a lot of an enormous amount of scholastic study. There are many books that feel that it was the second or in the, you know uh, subsequent pyramid. Most scholars today believe it predates the pyramids in Egypt for a number of reasons. 
Manetho, who is the primary source of Egyptology, one of the ancient priests who kept very detailed records, and because his records also record eclipses, it's possible to date them well. So it's it, it sort of bears a Manetho bears a relationship to Egypt that Josephus does to the first century as, as one of the primary historians. But Manetho, interestingly enough, attributes the Great Pyramid to non-Egyptian origin. In fact, his uh, uh, rather uh, brief accounts portray a strange story. Manetho describes a group of people which he calls the Hyksos. And as near as we can uh, uh, try to unravel the roots of that word, we think it means shepherd kings. And that's not exactly descriptive of what happened, because they apparently, and, uh, and by the way, Archbishop Usher, also another ancient source, also makes reference to all of this. this. These peoples entered Egypt and took the whole country over without a battle. There's even language that implies some kind of mind control. What they did when they took over Egypt was to destroy the temples and the polytheistic worship and institute monotheism. And they also built the Great Pyramid. Then, for no apparent reason, they left. And their, their coming and going is a subject of a lot of scholastic debate, a lot of study about it, but the, the net of it all is that uh, there's a lot of mystery about just who they were and why they were there. And the more you study the Great Pyramid, the more peculiar the story becomes. I want to mention something. All the other pyramids that are built are used as tombs, and the tombs are under the pyramid, not inside. You'll discover that the Great Pyramid is unique, that it has all kinds of chambers and things inside, and the presumption, in fact, a number of the ancient historians, Herodotus and others, point out it, it's not in, it was, there's no evidence that it was intended to be used as a tomb. What it was intended to be used for is a gigantic mystery. But uh, get, shake from your consciousness the idea that there's any real relationship between the Great Pyramid and all the other pyramids. All the other pyramids have tombs underneath the pyramid, not inside. All of them have hieroglyphics and other things. The Great Pyramid is amazingly absent of nothing but dimensions and certain reference points, reference marks. Now, let's first of all, before I go on, give you a, a feeling for what we're talking about. The base of the Great Pyramid in Egypt covers 13 acres. It's gigantic. About 900 million cubic feet of masonry on top of bedrock. The edges are about 755 feet on an edge. It's 454 and a half feet high. Incidentally, if you do a computer analysis of the planet Earth, that's the mean height above sea level of the Earth's crust, 454.5 feet. That's kind of interesting. I wonder how they knew, or is it just a coincidence? The pyramid consists of 2.3 million uh, limestone blocks. They weigh two and a half tons each. So this is a mammoth project. Herodotus estimates that it took 100,000 men 20 years to build the Great Pyramid. 
Another point to make, it's built of stone, not bricks. That's why it's endured through all these centuries. There are even some scholars that think it was pre-flood, but that's, they're in the minority. The pyramid is level. The base of it is level over the 13 acres with, to an accuracy of one inch. And some scholars believe that that was due to settling. The pyramid that you see if you visit Egypt is the inner shell. It was originally covered with polished limestone, and some of them are still there, but most of them over the centuries have been stolen, broken up and stolen for building materials. But those limestone blocks weighed about 15 tons each. But that's just the beginning, my friends. Sir Flinders Petrie is one of the many scholars that have spent most of their life measuring it, and he, in the 18, late 1800s, had, because of his professional background and what have you, he developed instruments that were accurate to a hundredth of an inch, temperature compensating rulers and so forth. And he spent, he and his wife spent an enormous time crawling through every detail of the pyramid and recording his measurements with incredible precision. This thing has been measured and measured and measured, and there's frankly uh, no real dispute of the actual measures. There's all kinds of conjectures of what the measurements mean. But first of all, I want you to visualize these stones that are 5 feet by 8 feet by 12 feet in size, okay, made remotely and moved there, and fitted, first of all, they're true, they're true, within a hundredth of an inch over a distance of 75 inches. The cracks between the stones are less than a fiftieth of an inch. And by the way, those tolerances are more precise than the tolerances we use on the tiles of the space shuttle. To give you a feeling for that. Petrie also discovered that the Great Pyramid is accurate, accurately aligned to true north, not magnetic north, true north, to an accuracy of less than five arc minutes of angle. And to give you a feeling for that, the Paris Observatory is uh, accurate to a tolerance twice that size. In other words, our modern observatories are not placed as accurately as that pyramid appears to be placed relative to true north on the planet Earth. Now, right about now, you're wondering, oh, how do they do all this? Especially since we're talking two, 3,000 B.C., uh, and there's a number of conjectures as the actual date. A couple of other comments. The, the, the Great Pyramid is the only pyramid that has its corners on sockets. It's like a ball and socket engineering design, so that the entire thing is temperature compensated. 3000 BC? You've got to be kidding. I guess it's perhaps time to get into a few other things. If you study, and this is exaggerated, but if you study the pyramid itself, you discover it's not exactly square, it's slightly concave, the, the, the sides are. There's two major units of measure, the sacred cubit, which is essentially 25 inches, and the uh, pyramid inch, which is essentially one and one hundredth inch English inches. If you measure the base, it's kind of interesting because the, the, the direct measure of the base turns out to be 365.242 sacred cubits. Why is that so interesting? Because it's the exact number of days, even to the decimal, of the number of days in a solar year. If you measure it 
from here to here to here to here, it is exactly equal to a sidereal year. A sidereal year is about 20 minutes longer because of the motion of the sun. There is another year, which if you measure from here to there, to the implied angle and back, it turns out that's exactly equal to the anomalistic year, which, is the, which in effect is the year of the equinoxes. And that turns out to be a five minutes longer in our actual year. And those ratios turn out to be exactly right. What a coincidence. <laughs> a couple of other things while we're on this. Let's talk about the sacred cubit. It turns out if you take 10 million sacred cubits, you get exactly the radius of the Earth from its center to the North Pole. Kind of interesting. And that's, by the way, to uh, hundreds of a mile. Pretty accurate. If you take uh, uh, 25 pyramid inches to the uh, cubit, it turns out that the polar diameter of the planet Earth is exactly 500 million of them. Now, how do the ancient Egyptians know these dimensions? Or are they just coincidences? There's another thing they discover, and that is that if you take the height of the pyramid and make that a, rate, a circle, make that the radius of a circle, the base of the pyramid is exactly equal to the circumference. Or to put it another way, that ratio is the famous mathematical number called pi, 3.1459, and many more decimal places. But it's accurate to five decimal places. So they know that the Egyptians, contrary to our other understandings, understood thoroughly not only pi, there's also some angles that are the ratio of pi over e, for those of you that are in calculus. That's kind of provocative, because that didn't surface until the 1800s, Newton and all of that. There's an angle that gives you that ratio, which happens to be 51 degrees in 51 minutes, and that angle, thus, is the angle of the side of the pyramid. I want you to remember 51 degrees, 51 minutes, because it's going to come up again before we're through. These numbers that I'm giving you, and I'm not going to bore you with all of them, they appear all through the pyramid in various ratios, dimensions, sometimes in inches, sometimes in the sacred cubit. Now, the average height of the earth above sea level is 455 feet, and the, the height of the pyramid is 455 feet. Something else, the average depth of the ocean is 193 feet 7 inches below the baseline of the pyramid. And if you take twice the diameter of a circle who has a circumference of that uh, 3652.42, that is the... Uh, the one that's equivalent to the solar year, it turns out when you run that arithmetic out, it comes to 2,325.2 inches, which, by the way, is 193 feet 7 inches, the average depth of the ocean. Kind of interesting. What, it, what a coincidence. This is a diagram describing, I'm, when I say radius, I'm talking about the center of the Earth to the North Pole, a polar radius, not the equatorial one. But it turns out to be exactly 10 million sacred cubits, or 500 million geometrical inches. Something else, those of you that have studied mathematics in college know one of the classic problems in mathematics is to square a circle. And it's generally considered an unsolvable problem using geometry alone. If you take a circle that has as its radius the height of the pyramid, this base determines a, a square that has exactly the circumference of the circle. The Great Pyramid represents the solution to that problem. And it all hangs on this interesting angle, 51 degrees in 51 minutes and 14.3 seconds, which is the angle that gives you pi, in effect. This is just an embodiment of the concept of pi. 
Those of you that are architects and know, the gold, and know about the golden triangle, that's also obvious in all the internal design of the Great Pyramid as to how you develop the 1.618, which is known as fee among architects. I won't get it all here. That, that's probably a little specialized. When you look at the pyramid, let's take the small diagram first to give you an overview. The pyramid itself has these chambers inside, for, and it's the only pyramid that has that. When, they, when you get inside the pyramid, there is a descending passage, and it, it goes through masonry this far, and then it goes through bedrock down to a subterranean chamber, and then there's a little dead end. When you get here, there's what they call the ascending passage. There's a granite plug here to protect it for a while. But this ascending passage goes up. At this point, two things happen. There's a horizontal pa passage that leads to a chamber that traditionally is called the Queen's Chamber, because the initial presumptions, of course, were that these were designed for tombs, and some people still believe that. Others feel that that's a, a misunderstanding. There's a giant gallery that opens up here. If you look, you visualize it as inverted steps. It, is, uh, uh, it has seven tiers, if you will, that close in. It's about 28 feet high, to give you a rough feeling. And this goes up and enters this peculiar structure they call the king's chamber. What's also interesting is all these chambers have air channels to keep the temperature absolutely balanced. If they're not pl plugged, they, it keeps the, the, the temperature at 68 degrees. And there's also a strange shaft through a grotto that goes down here. Well, first of all, a couple of structural remarks that I think are worth mentioning. This descending passage going through the masonry holds an accuracy of 1 50th of an inch within its 150-foot length. That's from here to here. Going through the bedrock from here to here, the additional 200 feet is bored through the rock with an accuracy of 1 quarter of an inch within the 350-foot length. But let me put it another way. You would have a tough time holding those dimensions if you were boring it with a laser. Now, how do they do that? Good question. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.